Let's open to 1 Timothy chapter 1. You may remember we've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy related to the church there in Ephesus that uh, Paul and Timothy had worked together as far as uh, getting them on the right track, but Paul left and left Timothy there to keep him on the right track. And it seems like there were definitely some problems there, a number of problems that were taking place. Um, so we won't read this whole chapter this morning as we have in the past, but I want to pick up with verse 18. Paul says to Timothy, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So, I'm going to zero in on verse 20 this morning, but just to remind you, we've looked, especially last time, in this, at this area of keeping faith and a good conscience. We emphasized mostly the good conscience last week, but uh, the Christian, you're not going to live the Christian life without faith and a good conscience. And Paul tells Timothy, this is what you need to do in that situation, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So there's these two, if you're going to fight the good fight, there's these two aspects that Paul brings out of vital importance for our warfare, and that is faith and a good conscience. Um, Paul sees the rejection of these two things, faith and a good conscience, as what has caused a great deal of harm there at the church at Ephesus. And he especially singles out two men, um, which that was the case for, Hymenaeus and Alexander. I think that they were probably leaders amongst the people who had turned aside to fruitless discussion, as Paul talks about a number of places. So I want to spend some time here thinking about and examining this verse 20. What had these men done? Well, they'd rejected the guidance of a good conscience. Even though their conscience, even though our conscience may not always be correct, we should never go against it. We should not violate what's true. Now, we brought this out last time, so I'm not going to spend time on it this time, but the basic rule is, I thought of this afterwards, and it's a good way to remember it, at least for me it is, don't violate, but educate. That's what we should do for our conscience, always. Don't violate it, but educate it. Learn more and more of what it means to walk with God by reading His Word, listening to God's Word, speaking to God's people. So don't violate your conscience, but edu- educate it. These men had not done that. Instead of a sincere faith, they had made shipwreck of their faith. They had, because of uh, not keeping faith and a good conscience, they had embraced some false teaching. 
They were teaching strange doctrines. Do we know what they are? Well, I think we get an idea of that if we turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 16 through 18. Uh, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now this is a different guy that mentioned here with Hymenaeus this time, but it's surely the same man, Hymenaeus. But here's what had happened with, with them. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. So they were believing false doctrine, uh, teaching false doctrine, saying that the resurrection had already taken place. What, why would they ever teach something like that? Well, because they'd been influenced by Greek philosophy, which said that the, the material realm was evil, the spiritual realm was all that mattered, and consequently, they were taking some of the teachings that of Paul, where he talks about that we've been raised with Christ, and saying that's the resurrection. That's all there is to it. The resurrection is already we've already been resurrected. Uh, so they were getting off track, taking something that Paul had said and uh, misapplying it, teaching wrong things, and causing others, it says, to go astray. If a person consistently stifles the voice of conscience. Their thinking will become twisted. You won't, you won't understand the scriptures the way you should. And they'll find ways to justify what's wrong in their lives. They, they'll do it from the Bible, amazingly enough. As one person said, with enough twisting, people can find arguments in the words of Christ to justify the ways of the devil. You can twist the Bible around that much. Uh, out of the right... They find distorted arguments to justify the wrong. That's what these men were doing, this uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander back in, in 1 Timothy. So, the other thing I would say about these men is if you start not keeping a good conscience, not only will it affect your doctrine, it will definitely affect your life. Evil living will come from wrong thinking and especially from this area of not keeping a good conscience. We learn more of what was going on if, we, if you're back in uh, 1 Timothy now, chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3. But the Spirit expressly says, and in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience. Remember, we're talking about not keeping a good conscience. Well, the next step down from that is having your conscience seared as with a branding iron. And here's some of the false doctrine that was coming forth. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So, going off track doctrinally, the conscience that is not kept clear can become seared, and a seared conscience will make shipwreck of the faith. So, um, just as a little aside here, we see the, the landscape of Christianity littered with that type of thing. It's, it's as, and Christian leaders 
Christian leaders who have not kept a good conscience and made shipwreck of their faith. Uh, people whose sin perhaps started out seemingly not so extreme. But because of not keeping a good conscience, it grew and grew until the place where they have really come to the place where their lives blaspheme the name by which they're called. That's happened in Christianity down through the ages, and we certainly see it in our day and age. Well, we're told several times here that one of the problems in the church of Ephesus was worldly and empty chatter. And when you read that, you think, well, that's not so bad. You know, just a little worldly and empty chatter. But this letter shows that such talk leads to further ungodliness and eventually will lead a person to false doctrine and sinful living. And that kind of worldly chatter, empty chatter, spreads like gangrene, we're told. And unless, what happens unless gangrene is stopped? You're a dead person. Such talk upsets the faith of many, and much speculation about spiritual and divine things, like the Greeks were noted for, uh, can bring very unhealthy and helpful uh, things into the church, and eventually it will bring a person to the place where they actually are blasphemers. This is what Paul says about these guys, verse 20 again. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, remember, these are people that started out with this stuff of worldly and empty chatter. But it says, Whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. You start out with worldly and empty chatter, and you end up with blasphemy. Well, isn't that what James tells us concerning the tongue? How great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. You have to guard against letting this type of thing happen in your life or you'll end up blaspheming God, speaking evil of God. And you do that not just with your tongue, but with your actions. That's what Paul was teaching back in Romans. Uh, let's just turn to this real quick. Romans chapter 2, verse 21. Talking to the Jewish people at this point, he says, we'll just start, we'll kind of break in here at verse 21. You therefore who teach one another, do you not teach yourselves? You who preached that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob the temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed. You see that? Blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. How is that? Because they were saying one thing and living another way. In other words, our act, what I'm, the point I'm trying to get here to is that our actions blaspheme God just as much as our words can. Normally when we think of blasphemy, we think of like the Ten Commandments. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But that... You do that with your actions also. You blaspheme God through your actions. So this brings me then to what I want to deal with this morning, the subject of disciplining sin in the church. 
That's, that's what this verse is about. I have delivered over to Satan these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. I have delivered them over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Uh, I want to take some time this morning to just zero in on this subject of church discipline or what's sometimes called excommunication. I don't like that title. I think it's, it has so much baggage connected with it that it's much better to talk about church discipline. First thing I would say is that I believe that there are degrees of church discipline presented in the Scriptures. It's not spelled out really clearly, distinctly, distinctly for us. There are principles that we can follow which relate to dealing with sin in the church, and I think these principles have to do with the severity of the sin, which of course then has to do with the severity of the punishment. Uh, the punishment must fit the crime. Depending on the nature of sin, whether it's been public or private, and whether it's a lesser or a greater sin, there are differing ways of handling church discipline, different degrees of severity. Let me just tell you what I'm talking about here. In some cases, a simple reproof or admonition is enough. For instance, in First Thess 5.14, it says, Admonish the unruly. But in other places where there's a greater degree of sin, it calls for a stronger rebuke. For instance, Titus in 1.13, Paul says, Reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. So that seems a little bit different than admonish the unruly. Some sins may require that a person examine himself as to whether they should take communion for a season. That's where you get the idea of excommunication. But uh, at least uh, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Why don't we turn there very quickly? You know the account here of the Lord's Supper, Paul explaining what's involved in that. But in the midst of that account, he says this, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of, of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick and the numbers sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. He's putting it back here. He's putting it back on the person, you see. This, this is a, he's talking about a form of church discipline that God brings upon you and you're supposed to examine yourself here. But nevertheless, we're just, I'm just trying to point out different, you might say, layers or degrees of church discipline. I'm, I'm saying here that a person should examine himself as to whether they should take communion. If, if there's a sin in your life, you need to examine yourself. Beyond that, 
if there's an unrepentant professing Christian who's been repeatedly warned to turn from significant sin, that person must be separated from the church. Now, the, the way I've worded that is uh, important. An un, uh, we're talking about an unrepentant professing Christian who has been repeatedly warned. And we're talking about significant sin here. Uh, that person must be separated from the church. Even in this, there seems to be degrees. For instance, in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, it says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, and that instruction had to do with working and not mooching off the church. If the, Paul says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame, and yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. See, that's a little bit different. He says don't associate with him, but still recognize him as a brother. It seems that that's different than removing someone totally from the caring discipline of the church. It's a little bit different uh, degree here. For instance, let me show you the difference. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to read uh, seven verses here just to get the sense of this, and it fits so well with the section that we're looking at in 1 Timothy. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. In other words, you're supposed to get this person out of your midst, removed from your midst, because this is such a known, blatant, serious sin. For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of Jesus. He goes on to talk about the, your boasting's not good. They were actually kind of reveling in the fact that this guy was part of their group. We can have this and still be following God. Paul says there's no way you as a church can follow God with this guy in your midst like that. Uh, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So, this is a certainly a, a more extreme situation than what we talked about with, with this uh, people that weren't working and kind of mooching off the church. And Paul says, don't associate with them, but yet admonish him as a brother. See, this is, this is a a level deeper because of the nature of the sin. 
Uh, here Paul's dealing with someone who claims to be a Christian but refuses to live as a Christian should live. Instead, instead they choose to live in blatant, open, serious sin. Sins that would fall into this category of church discipline are found in verse 11, if you're still there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He talks about this because he says, you know, these, the, the church there at Corinth didn't understand. They, they, uh, they thought that Paul was saying you need to uh, just disassociate, disassociate yourself from everyone who is a sinner. And Paul said you can't do that because you'd have to go out of the world to do that. He said, I'm not talking about uh, separating yourself from the world here. Uh, I'm talking about separating out people who say they're Christians and aren't aren't truly Christians. Uh, so verse 11, But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if they should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, that is, people outside the church? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God will judge. But what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to remove the wicked man from among yourselves. If you have a professing Christian that's living in, in this kind of sin, openly, uh, immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, you're supposed to remove that person. That's, this is, see, we're, get, we're following down the levels here of church discipline. Uh, another list of that same type of thing. Paul gives just a little bit later in, in chapter six of verse, uh, or uh, uh, yeah, chapter six, verse uh, nine. So you're with me here in First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived: neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. So, we're talking here about people who are living in open, blatant, serious sin. Paul says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Uh, Basically, what you have here is the church can no longer affirm these individuals as being Christians, as being believers. Another verse on this, Titus 3.10, Reject a factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a person is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. I think this factious part has to do with false doctrine. It's not just false, extremely false living. It can also be extremely false doctrine that will cause a person to be Separated. We won't look at it right now, but you see that also in Romans 16, 17, and 18 if you want to look it up sometime. So, how long should a person be dealt with before that happens? Well, there, as far as the factious man, he talks about a first and second warning. Now, what normally comes to mind in this area of church discipline has to do with the, what Christ taught in Matthew 18, so let's turn to that. We're looking here at the question of how long do we deal with someone before we put them out of the church, this more extreme form of church discipline. 
Matthew 18. We'll just read this section. Matthew 18:15. And if your brother sins, go to him and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a, ta- as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. In other words, you're not acknowledging this person anymore as a Christian. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two or three of you agree on earth about anything that you may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. This, uh, this whole section relates to church discipline. This is not just a, a, a general verse on prayer. This is a verse specifically related to the subject of church discipline. Uh, for where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. So, we're told kind of the overall general summary of the process. Start private and work on up with more people involved until it's actually brought to the whole church. And if that person refuses to listen to the church, they are to, to be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. In other words, the person is put out of the fellowship, no longer considered a, considered a member of the body of Christ. Uh, you, you would view him as you would view an unsaved person. Now, that, of course, that brings up the question, how did Jesus deal with tax gatherers and Gentiles? Well, he, we know that he was very uh, sympathetic in terms of uh, trying to teach and, and present truth to them. But Jesus also taught not to cast our pearls before swine, so you have to keep those things. You have to try to ascertain where God uh, wants you to draw the line as far as any kind of interaction with a person that you're viewing as a tax gatherer, uh, a Gentile and a tax gatherer. So, uh, I, I want to deal with this phrase, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Uh, that's the way it's put in, in the passage we read in 1 Corinthians. But Paul puts it this way in the passage we're looking at this morning in 1 Timothy. I have delivered over to Satan so that he may be taught not to blaspheme. Now this is a difficult passage. There's no question about that. I was thinking back uh, m- many years ago, we had uh, Brother Keith McLeod uh, speak to us m- many times uh, in a series of meetings, and God really used those meetings. But I remember asking him one time, what th- what's this mean, delivering such a, such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? He said, I don't know. <laughs> so... That tells me it's not that easy to know what this verse is about. But we want to examine some things here. Uh, first of all, I'd say that even with, with this uh, idea of delivering such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, 
that the spirit might be saved, the desire still in the midst of that is their recovery, not their ultimate destruction. In other words, the purpose seems to be remedial. By putting him out of the church and into the world where Satan is the ruler, that's, you know, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You're putting this person out of the church, you're putting him over into that realm. Why are you doing that? By putting him out of the church and into the world where Satan is the ruler, it is hoped that the person will see the error of their ways and turn back to God. Or uh, if they're not a Christian, to turn to God, and if they are a Christian, to turn back to God. I think I should point out that there's some question about what this phrase actually means for us today, delivering such a one to Satan. Some commentators doubt whether the church has this specific power of delivering someone to Satan for the destruction of the flesh since um, these are, there's no apostles today. If you notice that both times this is done, Paul's the one that has done it. Both times it's mentioned in relationship to the Apostle Paul. Here's how one commentator put it. Though the apostles had the power of excommunication accompanied by bodily affliction miraculously sent, it does not follow that fallible ministers now have any such power, save that of excluding from church fellowship notorious sinners. In other words, they're taking it as this was a bodily... When Paul prayed this, he was praying that there would be enough bodily affliction come upon this person by putting them out in Satan's territory that they would turn back to God. And uh, this, this commentator says we, it's not all that clear that we have that power today to uh, call down you know, uh, affliction miraculously sent by way of Satan uh, to do this today. So that that quote itself brings up a question related to the passage, and that is, what is this destruction of the flesh by Satan? Uh, is it to be understood as some type of physical, some some physical affliction, some bodily affliction or sickness, or is it the destruction of the flesh? Is the destruction of the flesh a spiritual thing? related to the destruction of sinful lusts. As the, the uh, NIV puts it, it's actually, this is actually a paraphrase, but they've, they've interpreted it for you, you see, in a paraphrase. The, the way that it's put there is that the sinful nature may be destroyed. So it's not talking about physical affliction, it's talking about affliction that comes, that brings about a turning away from the uh, sinful lusts and sinful nature. Uh, now, I actually lean towards the former position that Paul was actually speaking about Satan afflicting the unrepentant sinner with some fi- in some physical manner. But that doesn't st- that still doesn't answer the question whether the church can authoritatively do this the way the apostle Paul did it. Pray for someone to experience enough physical difficulty uh, inflicted by Satan that that person would be brought to repentance. Uh, So you have to decide what you think on that. Uh, I'm inclined to think that the church still has that uh, 
capacity. Yeah, I, I don't think it happens very often. It has to be, it's obviously a supernatural thing. Uh, one way or the other, it is an amazing thing to realize that God does accomplish His work even through Satan. Whether it's Satan making us uh, turn away from our sinful lusts, or if it's Satan actually bringing physical affliction upon the person, uh, hopefully to bring them to repentance. Either way, it's God using Satan to bring about His purposes. As a, using, he's using Satan as a disciplinary tool to bring a person to repentance. Uh, you know, you would think just uh, kind of superficially that if Satan, if you're going to turn somebody over to Satan, what they do, what Satan would do, is to teach the person to blaspheme more. But uh, Paul tells Timothy here that uh, he's turning him over to Satan that they be taught not to blaspheme. So, it is possible for God to use Satan's evil ways, I think, to shock a person into, rea- into the reality of their sin and thereby teach them not to blaspheme. If the person is a true Christian, I think the vain ways of the world and the evil ways of Satan, which they're going to be experiencing when they're out from the care of the church, uh, and the covering of the church will show them their need to repent. Again, I think the important thing to remember in all this is that the restoration and reconciliation of the believer who has gone astray should be the desire when when church discipline is called for. But even if that does not take place, even if that person is not reconciled and restored. It is important to exercise church discipline to keep sin from spreading to others. Paul says it's like leaven. you got to get that leaven out of there. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump. So that's another reason for church discipline. Not just the reconciliation or restoration of the person, but keeping sin from spreading. Sometimes sin must also be rebuked publicly so that others will recognize that serious sin will not be tolerated amongst God's people. And I think, you know, if the, if the person that you're dealing with is not, a, not, a, not truly a believer, if they're not really a Christian, church discipline may help them realize their need for Christ. So even if the person isn't a Christian, church discipline is important for that person. And along with this, church discipline is also necessary so that the name of Christ will not be dishonored among unbelievers. When a professing Christian continues in blatant sin in a way that is evident even to the lost world, this clearly brings dishonor to Christ, and his name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. The church must not let this happen, so this is another reason for church discipline. In short, the purpose of church discipline is the restoration of the offender, the purity of the church. Uh, Part of that has to do with separating out out those who are not really converted and the clarity of our witness to the world that the purity and holiness of God is honored before the watching world. So those are all reasons for church discipline. 
So what I'd like to do here in closing is just give you some basic principles that I think should be considered in this area of church discipline. First of all, it's biblical. I mean, that's the place to start. This is what the Bible teaches. It taught it in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Covenant, concerning the nation of Israel, and it is clearly to be practiced under the New Covenant, though now it is adapted to the spiritual nature of the church. In other words, if we're going to be biblical, this is going to be part of the Christian life and the Christian church. It is biblical. Secondly, I would say it's spiritual. It's a spiritual work. To carry it out properly takes the Holy Spirit. It takes spiritual discernment. It can't be done simply as step one, step two, step three, the way you would run a corporation or a business, because the church is not a corporation or a business. It's a spiritual organism. So it's not just here's step one, step two, step three. It takes real spiritual discernment to to carry out church discipline the way it should be carried out. Third, I would say, it is the loving thing. It's the biblical thing, it's a spiritual thing, and it's the loving thing to do. It's done for the good of the individual, the good of the church, and most importantly, it protects the good name and reputation of Christ on earth. So I want to emphasize this. This is the loving thing to do. It's not the easy thing to do. Uh, it's not the most pleasant thing to do, but it is the loving thing to do. Yeah. Um, whom the Lord loves, what's he do? He disciplines. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. An undisciplined church will be like an undisciplined child, self-centered, self-indulgent, and often bringing disgrace to the family. It is not loving to let serious sin to let serious sin be undisciplined. That is not the loving thing to do. Next I would say that church discipline should be appropriately limited. That is the process should involve as few of as few of people as possible as few people as possible to to sufficiently deal with the situation. It's just a basic principle there. You start out small and deal with it on the small level if you can. That's what Jesus was teaching there in Matthew 18. When the process moves beyond private exhortation and confrontation, the church leaders should be called into the process. This is obviously the case when things need to be brought to the church. In other words, if you have someone that you're aware that there's sin taking place in their life, you go to them privately. There's no, you don't have to go to the pastor. You, don't have, you certainly shouldn't go to somebody else. You go to that person. But after you've brought other people into the situation, and to have two or three witnesses involved, there's still no uh, turning to God, then if you're going to bring it to the church, obviously the church and the leadership has to be involved in that. The next thing I would say is that the length of the process depends on many factors, uh, but enough time should be taken to establish that the person has been shepherded towards repentance. Now, another, in other words, I'm saying it's not just step one, step two, step three. There needs to be a real sense that this person has been really 
the effort has been made to shepherd this person towards repentance. Uh, and yet, they're seen to be characteristically unrepentant. Not just temporarily unrepentant, but characteristically, persistently resistant to repentance. There needs to be enough time that that's established. However long that takes. But what I'm saying is a person may be temporarily unrepentant. You're still not to the place of bringing it to the whole church. You need to shepherd. There needs to be working with that person. Also, it should take long enough. This process should take long enough that sufficient information is gathered and weighed and earnestly prayed about. Such things that we're talking about here take real discernment and discretion. In some cases, the person may be barred from taking communion but allowed to continue to attend the meetings. In other cases, the person's involvement would be so damaging <clears throat> to the church uh, that the person would be told not to attend the meetings. These decisions involve discerning differences in the kind of sin and the disposition of the person involved. For instance, <clears throat> if this person, this disfellowshipped person, continues to say that they're right with God, that there's nothing wrong with them, that the church itself is wrong, uh, that's a different situation than if the person acknowledges their need for Christ, that they know they're wrong, they know that they need help, they know that I'm not victorious in this area. That's a whole different situation. So you have to discern where this person really is in order to make a right decision on how church, church discipline should proceed. Decisions related to church discipline should never be made from a position of self-righteousness, pride, prejudice, or personal vengeance or retribution. Instead, the heart attitude must always be a loving desire to see the sinning person brought to repentance and faith, or repentance and restoration if, if uh, the person was a Christian. You know... If a, if a person is caught in any trespass, Paul says there in Galatians, they should be uh, dealt with, with a, in a spirit of gentleness, he talks about. A spirit of gentleness. But even then, sometimes repentance is not always the result. You know, in First Timothy, Paul talks about this Hymenaeus. By the time he's writing Second Timothy, he's still... You know, in First Timothy, he says, I've turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that he be taught not to blaspheme. In Second Timothy, Hymenaeus is still not right with God. And there's probably, we don't know for sure, but there's a, probably a, at least a year, or maybe two years between the time of First and Second Timothy. So what I'm saying is, it doesn't always come out the way we'd like to see that person restored and brought back to God. Uh, so if disfellowship is to take place, the congregation should be appropriately informed and instructed and involved. The church should be especially involved in earnest prayer and informed as to what interaction they should have with a person that's disfellowshipped, and that can be different. <clears throat> 
dependent on the situation and the attitude of the person themselves. Uh, it varies with the situation. And then lastly, I would say this. When the church, and that would be primarily, primarily the leadership, is convinced that a person is genuinely repentant, it should not proceed it should not proceed any further with church discipline the, sh- the person should be welcomed back into fellowship you know in 1 Corinthians we read those verses related to this person that was uh, in this incestuous relationship and Paul says you know turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh apparently that in that case it did did play, take place the way you would hope, and the person was reconciled, but the the people at Corinth were reluctant to have the person back. Uh, and Paul says to them specifically, "Forgive and comfort him, reaffirm your love for him." So when a person is truly repentant, that's the attitude we take: yeah. forgive and comfort, and reaffirm your love for him. Uh, it may be when that person is brought back, there will probably be some need for extra shepherding in their situation. And it may take time, some time, for individuals to reestablish his or her reputation. Uh, and that's especially true if the person was a church leader. To reestablish trust may take some time. Uh, even after true repentance and forgiveness is, is granted. So those are just some basic thoughts related to this area of church discipline. I've um, kind of skimmed. Really, there's a lot in the scriptures about this, and I've tried to uh, bring out some of the main points. There's probably stuff I've uh, passed over without bringing out here today. I know there is. It's a difficult subject, difficult to properly understand, difficult to properly carry out, but it's important. And I thought that that's why I thought it was worth taking the time here related to this uh, one verse. Normally I won't try to get stuck on one verse as we're going through First Timothy here. But uh, it is, I think this was an extreme form of church discipline that, that Paul was talking about here with, with this Hymenaeus and Alexander. But it uh, certainly brings up the subject, so I thought we could deal with it uh, this morning. So I'll stop there. May God help us to uh, do this whenever it's necessary not to do it when it's not necessary, to do it according to His Word and His way, and to have the right attitude in it. Uh, Desiring, I mean, our default position should always be we want to bring this person to repentance and the forgiveness, the forgiveness that's there for people who repent and believe the gospel.